Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's class continues our structured study of the Dhammapada. I think this is 16 or 17. Um, Jane mentioned something on our Tuesday class uh, that she ended up discussing this with Matt, and Matt helped straighten her thinking out, which Matt is very good at, um, that she's starting to feel like these uh, these classes or this, the chapters are, get, are very dark. Um, and there's a reason for that. Dukkha is dark, and the difference between what the Buddha taught and nearly everything that was around during his time and our time is to try to put a positive spin on the inherent suffering of human life. And that is very debilitating because it takes us out of our bodies and out of our minds and has us, it establishes a self-referential way of living in the world. It establishes a way of living in the world that requires salvation rather than understanding. And that is the key difference between what the Buddha taught and literally everything else, every other philosophy that I've ever come across. Um, the Buddha teaches that his Dhamma brings right view. And right view is understanding dukkha, understanding stress, understanding the origination of stress, understanding, and this, and this means an experiential understanding, understanding the cessation of stress or dukkha, and experience or understanding the Eightfold Path leading to that cessation. So, of course, the focus is on what we're supposed to understand. It wouldn't, the, you could hardly consider the Buddha an awakened human being if he said, the problem is stress, but let's talk about oranges. It, it, it would be nonsense. But the Buddha always balances what he's teaching. He doesn't say that human life is, is full of suffering, period. He said human life is... is characterizes greed, aversion, deluded suffering, deluded thinking, manifesting as ongoing disappointment, stress, and suffering because of self-referential or wrong views. And every single sutta takes us from that focus to then this is, this is how you recover from those fabricated views. This particular chapter, and it's interesting that, uh, that Jane brought this up last week, um, this particular chapter, if you look at it from what I just said, you'll notice the balance that the Buddha is teaching here. He's mentioning the debilitating effects. Ah, oh, there's Mary. Let's Mary, come on. Good morning, Mary. So let me begin again. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, um, the debilitating effects of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, but the liberation, the peace, the calm, the, the, the freedom of understanding. And this chapter, and there's, there's quite a few others, but this chapter is, shows that perfect balance where the Buddha is describing the results of ignorance and the results of liberation. Piyavaga, subtitle, Skillful Desire. Entangled with what is not their task, ignoring what is their task, having dismissed the goal of understanding to grasp after what is desire, 
the fool envies the wise who follow the Dhamma. So, what is not our task? Does anybody want to answer it quickly? Being entangled in the world. That, that's right, being entangled in the world. And to take that a, a step further, people that are entangled in the world because their lives are so problematic because they're living in that with no escape, they're living in Duke with no escape, either take on the role of the, self, the, the Savior or they look to promote something that is salvific, to get out of that. So it's not our task to be, the, again, the, the Buddha was very clear. He's not the Savior. He's not teaching a salvific religion. You've heard me say that often. It's not our task to be the saviors. What is our task is to understand. And that, that, that beginning line in this provides all the focus we need for successful Dhamma practice. I'm not here to save the world. I'm not even here to save myself. I'm here to understand what, what's going on. In a way that's rooted in a realistic view that does not ignore the inherent suffering of human life. Birth, sickness, aging, and death. Not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. In short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. That describes human life, doesn't it? But when we want it to be different than it is in this moment, we're looking for salvation or at least escape from what's occurring. And so we think that it's very reasonable to find someone who can, who can put a positive spin or impose a positive spin on my life, meaning salvation after death. After all, people died for my sins, for my suffering. Or to establish something in my mind right now that allows me to <clears throat> fabricate a common, peaceful mind because I know when I get out of this awful experience, I'll get to something that is more pleasant. You've just lost your life. You've lost your mind. You've lost your life. The Buddha says, no. Each and every moment of human life is meaningful, no matter what the actual experience of it is. Why? Because we're present for it. When great sadness happens, when we lose a loved one, we're not supposed to not feel great sadness. We're supposed to, as awakened, fully mature human beings, feel that great sadness without the need for it to be any different. <clears throat> Without questioning, why did this happen? How could I lose someone like that? Why am I feel? How am I going to get by? What am I going to do now? Or when somebody eats that second piece of chocolate cake that I was hoping to get. It's simply life unfolding. Simply life unfolding. And we learn the radical acceptance of, of the present moment. How? By practicing wise restraint right here and right, right now. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Lost my place for a little bit there. <clears throat> Never join with what is desired. It's another way for saying clinging. Never join with what is desired or undesired. Both are rooted in ignorance, aren't they? And so, with a salvific or grasping after positive experiences or positive views, forces us to grasp after what is positive and grasp away from, establish a way that we won't be touched by what is undesired. Again, you've just lost your mind and you've lost your life because life is literally a balance of the two. It's not getting what we want and it's getting what we don't want. It's the five clinging aggregates. And when we're clinging to form, <laughs> feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, what does that mean? We're clinging to these experiences. 
and we've created an identity that we now incorporate within this thing that I call me. And I've decided that I need my life to be different moment by moment than what it is. Whether it's I need another piece of chocolate cake right now or I need at least salvation when I die. I need to know how am I going to establish myself. This, this life sucks so much that I need some kind of assurance that there's going to be something better when I'm dead. Do you see how you've lost your mind and you've lost your life? Some people might argue with losing your mind, but you certainly lost your life, haven't you? When you're constantly thinking about the reward you get for following whatever you're, you're following as salvation. Rather than simply understanding. And now, there's many, many people that could not imagine thinking this way. Not clinging to the idea of some form of salvation. They can't get past that notion. And, I, and because of my position, I see it all the time. And it manifests in different ways. Sometimes it's clinging to old um, Buddhist practices or old religions. Or simply old philosophies. And some people, it's clinging to an old political view. But it's always clinging to something. And it's that ultimate clinging, whatever it is. If my, if my basic belief is that all black dogs must be, must be put in a kennel. I'm, I'm using something very silly. But that's my, that's my, my raison d'etre for living. And I see a black dog, I've lost my mind. If I think that the purpose of life is to achieve salvation in this moment, there's no salvation in this moment. I can't live now. I can't live here. And I've created that situation in my own mind out of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. This is what the Buddha awakened to. And again, I'm using rather abstract examples. But an, an example that's not abstract is a quality of our mind in this present moment. Is my mind distressed or dis-ease in this moment? If it is, I'm not seeing things clearly. I'm out of right view. I'm establishing wrong view. And the more that I keep recreating that or finding myself in that point of view, the more that I'm not living my life. And I'm going back to what I said, that many people can't see past that. They can't see people. people we can't escape this, this trap of ignorance. Because we think we need that ignorant view in order to survive. Why? Because we think it's me. And why do I think it's me? Why do I think I need these certain things, whatever, whatever the conditioned thinking I've developed from my own experiences? Because I don't know any better. <clears throat> but ignorance is not... We can't ignore our own ignorance and think that that's okay as wise Dhamma practitioners. That's the, that's the whole point of this. It's the whole point of there is suffering and there's liberation. But I can't find liberation if I'm not willing to look at my own conditioned thinking. How do I do it? Through the, this gentle framework of the Eightfold Path as it manifests, as my mind, as my, the, 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 the present quality of my mind will always manifest in the aspects of speech, action, and livelihood. And if we're mindful of that, and mindful of the right or skillful aspects of speech, action, and livelihood, we will see where our conditioned mind is manifesting in the world. We will see where we're creating suffering for ourselves. And we'll take the focus away from what's out in the world, how the Buddha started this, saving the world can't be done. Can't be done because there's nothing really to save. 
and will place that, po- that focus back where it belongs. Skillful desire, my skillful desire to understand my own ignorance. John? Yes, please. So, I got to get white. <laughs> the understanding, if it's not framed within the formal truths, you can see that as a positive thing, and that would be wrong. It should just wow. be, yeah, not neutral, but it just is. It it just is. And if it's not framed, you can self-referentially say, "Oh, I got that. I'm I'm a better person now." Where the point isn't to become better; it's just to understand. Yeah, yeah. Why that? That's it, it, so incredibly insightful. I'm not trying to become a better person because how do I? How do I quantify that view that I'm becoming a better person? Because now I can think I think the world is seeing me as a better person or a woke person or an awakening. You gotta be careful these days what words you use. Because now I'm trying to portray to the world how wonderfully saved I am. Portray yourself. As opposed to understanding, I'm just trying to be a human being. The, what the Buddha teaches and what David's expressing better than I think I've ever done. <laughs> he's teaching us to be an ordinary human being and stop trying to be something other than what we are. What is more rooted in arrogance than to think that there's some type of system or being that is shining his light on me to save my ass? Why? And again, I remember asking, uh, I shouldn't go into these things. I'm like, I'm going I'm to practice wise restraint yeah. for the and first better. time in my life. <laughs> and better always is referential. It, yeah. Better than what? Than you were before yeah. or somebody else or what? And that's often enough. If I can convince myself that I'm doing something that's bettering myself. I mean, isn't that what we're told? We should always be, do this, do that. It's going to make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Again, what is wrong? better than what? Better than a human being? I can never be better than a human being because that's all I can ever be. But that's enough, isn't it? That's enough. In fact, that's where liberation arises from and is established in being what I am. And like everyone else, I, I, mean, I remember being confused at five years old about what I was. You would think that a human being would know what it is, wouldn't it? But we don't. Because we get caught up in conditioned thinking, oh, it's present in the world. It's, and that's not the world's fault. You know, there's nobody to blame for my ignorance, save my own ignorance, especially when I found something that takes me out of that ignorance. But even, even beyond that, it, there, there's no excuse in the world for remaining ignorant, except we understand this. There's a, the line in the Don Navaga that, that we don't, we don't per, uh, uh, perform violence on innocence. And I got an interesting question from. Um, I think it might even been, is Adam here? No, from, it might have been Adam. Really good question. Does, the question was, are, does, is it okay to, to perform violence on people that aren't innocent? But that's not what the Buddha is talking about. Well, it's a reasonable question though, isn't it? When you don't have the, the, the complete picture. In, in our minds, in, in my, and I, I used to say this even before I came to the Dhamma, but in, in my mind, Adolf Hitler was innocent doesn't mean he didn't do awful, brutal, one of the, the, the most disagreeable and hateful people on the planet Earth ever in history. But he's innocent because he was ignorant. 
and I don't have to judge him any any farther than just recognizing what this human being did. And as an example, pretty pretty extreme example of a mind rooted in ignorance. But he's innocent of any wrongdoing, isn't he? In my mind, that that is a that's that's protection for me, for me not losing my mind. And imagine if we could do that in the world today, more more and more. It doesn't mean we can't see things that are not in accordance with the Dhamma, not in accordance with Four Noble Truths, but we understand it because these minds are rooted in ignorance. How could you judge a mind rooted in ignorance? Do we beat beat our kids up because they take an extra cookie? No. We might. But we might correct them because that's our job to do. We don't judge each other harshly in this room when we might ask a question that's not quite within the, the framework of the Dhamma because we understand we're all developing the same thing. Everybody is innocent of wrongdoing no matter what we do. It's up to individuals to change their behavior, and then if that behavior becomes too egregious, then society has ways of dealing with, with misbehavior. I don't have to do it. I don't have to be judge and jury of everything that's going on in the world, do I? The only thing I have to be mindful of is my own mind. Let me continue. Never join with what is desired or undesired. It is painful to do so. Do not make anything the focus of desire. Like David was just saying, not even the not even awakening. Right effort keeps us focused on. The, I'm not practicing the Dhamma to become a better person. I'm practicing the Dhamma to become a person. It is always painful to be separated from what is desired. There's a couple of suttas that I'll be teaching early next year, where the Buddha teaches using another way for saying what is desired is what one would hold dear, and it's really interesting. Sutta, uh, it, it's called the, the Raja Sutta to the king, where the, the king comes back and forth with the Buddha and what I'm holding dear. And the, the, the Buddha says to him, if your son dies, would you be upset? And, and I'm, I'm really greatly paraphrasing the Sutta. And the king says, of course I would. And the Buddha said, your suffering arises because you hold your son dear. Now think about that. It, it almost... It's almost hard for many people. Are you saying that I should I should hate my son or I shouldn't care about my children? No, but understand the nature of impermanence. And then it, it, there's always and he said, look at this one. And, the, and she lost her son when he was three. And look at that one. It's just the consequence of having a human life. But meaning when I'm clinging to it, holding something dear, it's I want something to be different than it is. I want my children to live forever. I don't care that it doesn't happen in the world. I need it to be this way. And so the Buddha is saying the same thing here. It is always painful to be separated from what is desired, no matter what it is, whether it's a second piece of chocolate cake or situations in the world to be different than they are. And again, it doesn't mean that we recognize that things could be more in accordance with the Eightfold Path, but that's simply rooted in ignorance. There's nothing to blame and no one to blame. No bonds are found for one who has overcome craving. No bonds are found for one who has overcome craving. That's another word for freedom, for liberation. And where are these bonds? They're in our own minds. Of course they are. From what is desired is born grief. From what is desired is born fear. 
and this is where the, the notice the balance. If our minds are inclined toward rejecting the negative aspects of human life, we might say, oh, Buddha is so dark and so negative. <clears throat> Released from desire, there is no grief. Released from desire, there is no fear. So if we don't want to be constantly grieving or filing grievance with the world, if we constantly find ourselves fearful of this or that, let go of the desire that things be different than they are. And again, it doesn't mean that we're going to... I keep going back to a question that was asked at one of our first retreats, and this was when I was teaching the Anatta Lakana Sutta, but similar to this, that there's no, no self-characteristic. And the person asks, well, what's going to happen? What do you do if a train's coming at you? You take two steps to the right. As Dhamma practitioners, we don't prove that we understand everything by getting blown to smithereens by a train. But we take two steps to the right, out of, not out of fear, out of understanding. And it's the same action, wouldn't it be? Fear and understanding would make us do the same thing. But the inner motivation, one is based on fear and self-referential views, and the other is based on simple understanding. Take two steps to the right. Release from desire, there is no fear. Attachment brings grief. Attachment brings free, fear. Free of attachment, grief and fear cease. <clears throat> Lust brings grief. Lust brings fear. Free of craving, grief and fear cease. People hold dear the disciple who has established virtue and skillful insight, who has realized the truth and does what must be done. What must be done? Someone. Everyone. That's all we, that's all, that's it. Yes. That's the only thing that must be done as Dhamma practitioners. If, if we're not. What did you say, Jen? Unbinding? Oh, okay. But even, even in the world, um, when you're going around your, your daily life, if you approach it as I'm doing what must be done, even in your daily tasks, that takes a lot of self-referential stuff out of your daily life. Yep. Yep, that's absolutely right. So, so it, has to, it needs to be done. I'm here. We do it. It takes the, the uh, a lot of the, the resentment out of out of uh, daily work. Yeah, even Why even having. Yep. Why yeah. should I do it? Well, it's there to be done. I'm here. Do it. And this is what I do. <clears throat> and it's and it, and the next thought. People would say, well, you should be grateful for what you're doing. You should consider yourself fortunate to be doing what you're doing within the framework of the Eightfold Path. It doesn't matter what that is. Does everybody get that? Because, and Ram's talking about very, very subtle levels of eye-making. And it, it also touches on what David said. I do what I do because it's what I do. But I can do it with a calm and peaceful mind without taking anything personally. Because nothing is. And if you frame it, the, the Eightfold Path, even the seven factors of enlightenment, like you, you find the desire for, to investigate, frame properly. And uh, I find that those seven factors, you look at those, you know, tranquility and mindfulness and investigation, those are things that you can desire but it has to be framed properly. 
Yes. Those are all pretty good. That skillful desire. desire. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's why that that's what this is about. The, the skillful desire to to incorporate the Dhamma in every aspect of our lives. And that's not something that should be um, stressful, meaning what what uh, what factor of the Eightfold Path am I applying here? It's a natural consequence of developing the Eightfold Path rooted in jhana meditation that spontaneously and immediately is our ongoing right view because we've done we've done the inner work the introspective insight to place to place the to place human life as it occurs within the framework of right view there's no me here and what is seen there's only the seen and what is heard there's only the heard and what is cognized there's only what is cognized but here's sutta it's just what's occurring so when Ram's doing an installation or I'm teaching a class or Kevin's Kevin's working on a on a patient, and I'm not I'm not excluding anyone from what, what they're doing, just using the example, they're there in a mindful presence. But they're not saving anyone. They're not doing something extraordinary, except in the moment what they're performing, what their their objective that they're developing is extraordinary. Because they're mindfully present. We're mindfully present for life as life occurs. You've heard me say it over and over again. Life becomes incredibly meaningful when we're simply present for it. We don't have to, atta- we don't have to and when we do attach anything else to it, we're eye-making, we're losing the, the special immediacy of what's occurring right here and right now. And each and every moment is special and then it's not. Then it's gone. It's only special while it's here. The disciple, intent on release from wrong views, dwells in profound wisdom, free of all sense desires. This Dhamma practitioner is in the stream of my Dhamma. When a person returns after a long absence, family and friends welcome them home. I like love this part. In the same manner, the disciples own good deals, welcome them, having left the world behind. Read that one more time. In the same way, in the same manner that wise disciples own good deeds, welcome them, having left the world behind. Our own good deeds, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Isn't that marvelous? The, the Buddha is just con- continually encouraging us and reaffirming the power of his Eightfold Path by our own good deeds. The more we engage in right speech, right action, right livelihood as a check on whether I'm my, I, I've lost my mind or not. Those good deeds welcome me home. They welcome me back into my mind and my body in a calm and peaceful life. That's all. <laughs> uh, Josh, how are you? Good, John. Hi, everybody. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. A wonderful Suda, John, and and uh, I think what I'm getting out of it is how does one lead a skillful life? Uh, for some reason, in my mind, I was thinking of of. Uh, metaphor of, of 
someone who's a skillful driver of a car that uh, uh, not going too fast, not going too slow, uh, uh, being present uh, in the moment, uh, being aware of what's going on. Uh, 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 if somebody cuts in front of you, having some restraint and not uh, being angry or upset about it, it's just, it's just a, a, a flow that goes along with being a skillful driver. And, and uh, I did have a question about the difference between uh, craving, and you gave a, a, an example the other day about uh, getting a red Ferrari about craving for a red Ferrari versus having the, the ability to, to, to get one just because you, you would simply enjoy it. And I'm not sure if I, if I understand the nuance between those two. So uh, I'll leave that up to you. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Uh, it, it, it is rather nuanced and maybe using a, a, a new red Ferrari is not the right one to use there. Maybe a, a, a Chevy Impala would be better, but it simply means that whatever, whatever I find in my garage is what I find in my garage. It's got nothing to do about with me. And, you know, so I would enjoy any of them and that it doesn't need to be a Ferrari for me to enjoy it. But if it's there, there's nothing within the dominant says I shouldn't enjoy it just as, as I shouldn't enjoy whatever else I find there. You know, it could, it could be a, a you know chariot with a horse attached to it. It doesn't matter. Um, the uh, there, there's a there's a part of this this salvation positive thinking underlying ethic in the world uh, also manifests manifests as a as a subtle form of asceticism, meaning that if I find myself driving a red Ferrari, that there's something wrong about that. For and people come up with all kinds of reasons because, you know, I remember when I was a kid and we, you were told, my mother said, you got to finish everything on your plate because people are, are starving in Biafra. Well, they were, but I could never make the connection to that. You know, it, 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 one really doesn't have anything to do with the other, except it's a good example, I think. <laughs> Does that help? I wish you all could see Josh's face. He's got such, he's got like a, what a wonderful dumb face he's got. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Mary, how are you? I'm good. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, I, I can see Josh's face. Yes, he looks can. very cherub-like. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> good morning. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot here. I did read it. I don't get to every week, but I did read it. And um, there is a lot here, and it you know, affected me in a meaningful way. I'm still processing it. Um, I guess the example of the red Ferrari, if I can chime in on that, is, you know, how you feel toward it and how you feel that it makes you look to others, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. Often people who are, um, you know, wearing things or buying things or whatever aren't doing it because they enjoy the beautiful craftsmanship of a vehicle that was created by other people who also adore the craftsmanship of a beautiful vehicle. Yeah. Um, 
And and you can probably assume that of people, right? You can project your own thinking that somebody who yeah. drove by in a red Ferrari is trying to identify with that, you know, owning a red Ferrari. And so, it, you know, our, our brains are a, uh, an interesting thing, how we how we project right and wrong and how we perceive things. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I had to say. So I'm going to continue to think about this one uh, a little bit more. I have uh, a couple of things that um, maybe I'll follow up with you, John. Oh, please. I'd love to hear from you. Okay. I look forward to seeing Thank you in a you. couple of weeks. David. I'm good, John. Thank you. Thank you for being here. <coughs> Input. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Um, so I'm just thinking about, because I feel I heard a question kind of in what Josh was saying, and, and there was something else that you underscored, and I wanted to underscore again, and I'm still trying to. So the phrase, where there's desire, there's fear. Because of our conditioning, especially in this culture, we are always grasping after something. Yep. And so to hear where there's desire, there's fear, we can immediately take that and think, oh, okay, so the problem here is, is desire. That's what we need to tackle. We need to get rid of that desire. We need to figure that out. And it's not quite that. It's not to get away from desire. It's not to get away from fear. It's just to see ah. that if you want to know why you're afraid, it's because of your desire. Yep. That, that... And, and, and it's not... I need to get rid of that desire. It's just, I need to understand that because that is all in me and that's all that I can control and understand is, is understanding what's going on inside of me. Yeah. That's, and that's the work that we can do that is skillful and, and, um, will bring peace. So it's not so that instead of why am I afraid, then that, you know, one step back from that, oh, I'm afraid because of desire and then just kind of understanding my own desire. I go to why am I afraid and that turns into something in my environment that I need, now need to control. Oh, I'm afraid because this person is making me feel afraid and now I need to like protect myself from this person. And now you're outside of your sphere of control. Yes. So that's, that's what I wanted to highlight. That's, you actually, yeah, so thank, thank you. Thank you for, again, you said it in a wonderful way. So yeah, we're not, we're not trying to, we're not against fear. Right. We're not against desire. Fear is the is the signpost that we're rooted. Fear is the pop up window mm -hmm. that we're that there's ignorance present. That's what we're hoping to resolve. Yeah. If we're constantly trying to eliminate fear, we're going to end up end up like the folks in the Kalama Sutta, or we're going to look for salvation. Because what can I? If I'm afraid, 
I'm out of control. I, I have no control over this situation, whatever it might be. And it could be something subtle. It could be, I'm afraid that my red Ferrari won't be there tomorrow. Those are, those are all rooted in ignorance. Remember, it also goes back to the Loka Vaga and the Loka Sutta, where there's desire. I looked out on the world. The world was aflame with what? Aflame with the fires of passion. Desire causes fear. The second noble truth is craving for and clinging to thing and craving uh, desire, craving for and clinging to what I need to maintain this fabricated view of self in the world. And when I feel that I can't do that, I'm full of fear. And sometimes it's an unrecognizable. It's, it's not recognized individually as fear, but it, 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 the, the common word is stress. <clears throat> in some way in this moment, whether I'm, I'm mindful of it or not, when I'm aware of the inner stress, it's because I don't think I'm going to get what I want or need. And again, we found in the last 20 years that stress is one of the major con contributors to human disease. Disease. Thank you, Jen. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> it, it's uh, interesting to see that the Buddha puts the grief in here. Yeah. He starts with desire. And he says, well, what are we grieving? We're, we're grieving the loss of what we thought we were going to get. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> that grief then turns to fear because now we fear that this is going to happen again. We are, yeah. this, this pain is going to hit us again. And these are, I mean, I, I just love the way he, he, he teases apart this, this, these chains of, uh, of um, emotions that we get in, in life, in, like moment to moment, really. Yep. And it's also, when you're mindful of that, you're also mindful of the, the, the quickness of impermanence within yeah. our own thoughts and feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, and, you know, as soon as that, that cup of coffee is empty, it's like, oh, my God, my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a cup of coffee, you know? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. Julia, how are you this morning? Good. Good job. Um, let's see what I, what I wrote. Oh, well, the thing that I wrote that, um, that I thought about was the first line where it says, Entangled with what is not their task, ignoring what is their task, having dismissed the goal of understanding to grasp what, what is desire, the fool envies the wise. And it, it kind of makes you think of a question: what what is it that the fool envies? You know, why 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 are they why are they envying the wise? And um, I look at the answer as well because the wise are not entangled; they're untouched by stress mm -hmm. and suffering, and they live a life in equanimity. Yeah. Um, and so then you, you say, you know, the wise, um, they, they do not ignore their task. So what is their task? Well, their task is to become unbinded and to become liberated to follow the Eightfold Path. Yeah. So what is skillful desire? Well, skillful desire is all the rungs of the Eightfold Path. That's the desires yeah. that we should have to follow that path, mm -hmm. to have um, right, right view, you know, right speech, right intention. To, to follow follow through those should be our desires yeah. and so that's the way I looked at I looked at on on the sutta the sutta because I thought well 
I have to ask myself questions to find the answers, you know. And so that's the way I, I, um, I, I tested it. <clears throat> then the other thing that was very um, interesting was this last line where it says, when a person returns after a long absence, family and friends welcome them home. Um, and that in the same manner, the disciples' own good deeds welcome them having left the world behind. And I don't know why, but the, the prodigal son comes to my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it's Catholic upbringing, you know. But, um, <laughs> non become But it's funny because I, at first I, I thought, well, you know, it's funny how I, I, I really did never really, I guess you don't really understand that story until you see it presented this way. Yeah. Then you really understand the story because it's the same message. It's... Yeah, the allegory fits better here than it does in the original yeah, intent. Because you can see the person totally becomes worldly, uses up all resources, and finally when they become so dispassionate about everything about the world, they return back yep. to source. And then they fully understand, they see their own ignorance, yep. and then they finally they're finally able to practice, you know, the correct path. So it's interesting how, I, I don't know why that story came to my mind, but I just had to share that because I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So I could see the, I could see the relation. I guess maybe that was the intent of the story to begin with. Uh, it, it, thank you, Julia. Again, it, just great insight. That we're not, we're not gaining something that we, that we aren't, are we? We're, we're, we're simply becoming what we are, and we're letting go of everything that we can't possibly be, which is... The essence of ignorance, isn't it? Yeah. We no longer ignore our what we are as human beings, mm -hmm. and we no longer need to be anything else. We've literally come back to <laughs> ourselves. You know, come back. We've, we've reclaimed our minds. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, John. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, John. Um, I just wrote something very quickly and relatively simple. I think to understand, uh, which uh, I believe. Uh, helps me understand Dhamma better. Uh, the recognition of what we are not and restraint from acting upon that which we are not is the beginning of an unbinding. Mm. So to me, uh, again, the recognition of uh, anatta uh, and ignorance and uh, if we're going to address that it has to be framed by the eightfold path. Yeah. The recognition, I believe, is is a key to uh, all that we're trying to accomplish here with the Dhamma. Yeah. That's that's really you, you reminded me of a, there's an article on the website called uh, "Mindfulness is Recognition and Renunciation," and this your the, your line that the, this is the beginning of unbinding. Is so important for us to understand as Dharma practitioners. This is a process. This is something that we do. We engage with it. We continue with it through right effort and the other factors of the Eightfold Path. And if we do that, the Buddha assures us that the end result is assured. As opposed to, well, I just have to believe in Lord Buddha and all the divas and I'm saved. Which is something that was common during his time and our time. This is a process. And it's a process of unbinding from Views ignorant of four noble truths. <coughs> well said. Thank you. Who's next? Brett, how are you? <laughs> good, good to be here. Uh, it's good to hear everybody. Um, the, it's helpful listening to about desire and uh, you know, uh, fear and letting life unfold. And I think that's a lot to do. But 
for me, I think <coughs> getting out of the teaching is just uh, you know, being able to be with your emotions and feelings and yeah. uh, letting it unfold. And I was at a, a gathering last night that there's a person there that always kind of had, like, you know, it's weird when I see this person and I just got to let it go. And you got to sit in there and uh, sit with it. And I'm like, here it is again. Just sit with it and then it goes away. Yeah. And the more I can sit in it, the better training it is for me. And uh, I'm trying to buy it, put an offer in to buy, buy a house. And it's, uh, you know, I got to sit and wait until Tuesday. More this desire right in my face and how I want it and how it's going to change my life. And, mm-hmm. and uh, every time I kind of, get to one of these situations to try to buy something like this and it's all the desire and then it doesn't happen and I'm left with myself again and it's a it's a cycle I can really see but now it's like all right if I don't get it it wasn't meant to be I don't you know it's okay so I have to Tuesday to uh you're describing you're describing you're describing recognition and renunciation. Yeah. It's not you're not doing something wrong that you're looking forward to Tuesday, especially when you recognize that now I need to renounce that thought. You bring you bring your mind back into your body and it passes. Just like you did with the, with the person that was used to bother you. And in the moment they're bothering me, I recognize it and I let it go. That's Dharma practice. Yeah. It doesn't and it, it's both of those things too, by the way. I mean eventually you'll get to the point where There'll be nothing to disturb the quality of your mind, but this process that Michael just mentioned is just what you're doing. That, that, when you think about that, it, it truly is remarkable that we're able, that we're even able to do this, isn't it? Yeah. And you're doing it. So, congratulations, Thank my you. friend. Hello, Becky. Hello. Hello. <clears throat> um, well, I really like I wrote something down and. Listening to everyone speak, I there's there's a lot more in this. Uh, I'll call it a suda, even though yeah. it's really kind of a poem. <laughs> um, than 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 I addressed in what I wrote down. Um, and listening in class again, of course, has, has taught me that and has brought that home. But the thing that I, I, that just hit me when I read it was near the end where it says the disciples own good deeds, welcome them having left the world behind. And that just made me realize what we are trying to do when we finally get there. Because the disciples' own good deeds, welcoming welcoming them, is that the disciple has created in himself his own place of refuge yes 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 and it's palpable yep and it's a place from which he can look out and see the world in all its chaos and do what must be done which is not contribute to that chaos 
And you have created, therefore the world can't entangle you because you've had, you've created your own loving arms of refuge and peace from which to live your life. Once you get there, <laughs> but you, you know, it's just such a, such a, a line. You know, the disciples' own good deeds welcome them, having left the world behind. Isn't that beautiful. Yeah. That's in that's in them. That they created that yeah. in themselves yeah. by practicing the Dhamma and following the Eightfold Path. Yeah. It's a beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful line. Yeah. I agree. Thank, Thank you. you. That's all yes. I Thank you, Becky. That <laughs> that we we are as the Buddha says, we are our that's own awesome. refuge. How else could we not be? This is this is what we do for ourselves. If, if you want to look at it as salvation, we're saving ourselves, but really what we're doing is saving our minds from ignorance. So, thank you. Kevin, how are you? Very yeah, well, there you are. Well, <laughs> uh, it's awesome just listening to everybody, um, the, the wisdom and the, the depth of everyone's comments is astounding. Um, and I also focused on these last lines and these last two verses um, about this homecoming that you're welcome home by your family and friends when you've gone for a long time. And I, it made me think about when I came to this sangha four years ago, and then when I went to my first retreat mm. about a half year later, it was like, oh, I'm home. This mm. is home. So um, it's it's the Dhamma, really. The Dhamma welcomed you home. And I had known for a long time, forever, that I was seeking something. And I wasn't sure what it was. And I, I had to learn about it here. And it's a, a, a homecoming and a welcome. And I, I get to enjoy that over and over. So thank you. Thank you, Kevin. <clears throat> the good thing about these goggles is nobody can see me cry. <laughs> I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. This is... I wish it was... It was Sarah Puta that said, it's amazing, it's astonishing what goes on here. And it really is. The... Uh, the manifestation of the authentic Dhamma in a Sangha is just, just remarkable. And we, are, we all are experiencing it. There really is nothing like it, is there? You know? just, uh... Phew! Um, so this, this sutta is just such a good example of why we focus on, just to use a term, why we focus on the negative. Because it is that negative aspect of human life that we get caught up in. Um, and you could even take that to say the, the things that we see in the world as might be positive, like a, I need to get a red Ferrari or getting a, my, my new house. That's still an aspect of dukkha that we get caught up in. The, in the Dhamma, there's no, there's no prickly thorns in it. We just do it and remain free and liberated. We remain home no matter where we go, as Ron was talking about. We take it wherever we go. 
And then the Eightfold Path, the Dhamma, is simply a moment-by-moment -moment expression of understanding, of profound wisdom and profound knowledge of what's occurring. And when you understand that, there is nothing that could disturb your mind, isn't there? I mean, I, again, I keep going back, and I'm thinking more and more about my younger days, and I think it might be because I'm getting closer to the, <laughs> closer to the end. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But a lot of my thinking, I certainly wasn't clear about it, was I really just wanted to understand what the hell was going on. And nothing anybody was saying made any sense. And, uh, and so I started grasping into different, first, first it was drugs and alcohol that we're going to find. You know, that, that worked for about uh, 18 minutes and then it almost killed me. And then a series of belief systems that I, I grasped onto um, the first time I meditated, the only reason I did it is I was interested in the girl who taught me meditation. I had no interest in it, but it got me going in the right way. And uh, probably it was right that she didn't want anything to do with me either. <laughs> and so and along the way, almost every practice that I found, whether it was just for, you know, again, eight minutes or maybe a, a bit longer, maybe a couple of years. As soon as I found it in that moment, I thought, this is it. This is a group of people I want. This is what, but the longer I did it, the more disappointing it became until I came across the Buddhist Dhamma. And I didn't have a, a teacher like you're so fortunate to have, um, but I had the same experience that Kevin just described. After a, a really short while, I realized I, I came home. And whether anybody else in, at that moment, it didn't matter if anybody else in the world ever saw this the way I saw it, or I never thought about teaching it. I was just so happy that I finally came home. And I've never left. <laughs> um, I don't think I want to say anything else except finish with Meta. So I will. We'll conclude with Meta, uh, as we always do. And again, this is the Karaniya Meta Sutta. I want to remember to say this more often. This is uh, the restored version from the Amaravati uh, Monastery in <laughs> London, England. They did a beautiful job with it. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, 
one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. <coughs> Excuse me. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for Bye. joining us. Bye, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.